I would like to thank Dr. Purnasan, whose pro- project Above the Parapet has enabled so many of us to be here and has certainly enabled me to have the great pleasure of welcoming such fantastic uh, ladies as Dr. Banda, who I will talk about in a moment, and Dr. Karen Lloyd. Uh, and I would like to, of course, welcome you all for being here. Uh, Dr. Lloyd is the High Commissioner of Republic of Seychelles in the UK. She's a former Minister of Health and Social Development and has been responsible for gender. And she has pioneered uh, many uh, projects concerning women uh, specifically. And I think her projects have resulted in the lives of many women being saved as a result. When it comes to Dr. Joyce Banda, I have spent two days reading about her, and I still find that there is so much to read. So how I would be able to tell you in five minutes uh, how wonderful she is 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 going to be very difficult, particularly that she constrained me not to say many things. What I would like to say is that for me personally, it's an enormous honor and privilege to have met her because she is the kind of woman that many women leaders are not. She is the first woman president of Malawi, the second woman in the whole of African subcontinent to be president. But what I find moving and special about her is that she began uh, selling fritters in the marketplace. And as she rose, she rose against... She fought against nepotism. She fought against corruption. She refused to be subdued by mores which demanded of women to be submissive, to be obedient. And when things were really difficult, she decided to start a party of her own and go against every other kind of uh, establishment. And she has succeeded. But what is even more special is that when she was a president she didn't forget about those who don't make it. She she gave 30% of her salary away. She sold the presidential jets and gave the money away. And she has been uh, running charities then and now and continuing. Despite threats, despite difficulties, uh, she really is a formidable woman. And I think it's a great privilege to have her here. Thank you. Okay, Okay, so I will now ask uh, Karen Lloyd to start. Uh, Good evening, all. Uh, Maybe just one correction. Oh, beg your pardon. Uh, I am not Dr. Lloyd yet. (laughs) You should join us. I'm I'm hoping, yeah, that by the end of this project, uh, I might get the the, the title. Uh, Yes, I am, as uh, been introduced, the High Commissioner for the Republic of Seychelles to the UK. It will be two years next month that I would have been posted here. Formerly, I was, I've been in the public service uh, almost like all my career. And uh, the last uh, post was the Minister for Health and Social Development. 
Previous to that, I've been involved in various uh, ways in uh, empowering women. Uh, as been introduced again, uh, I have pioneered various. I pioneered the first uh, beautician, beauty therapist uh, course in Seychelles for young girls who were, we called it, it was almost a Pygmalion type of project. They were on the unemployment relief scheme. And I said, I'm sure we can turn them into you know, spa therapists, beauty therapists. Seychelles, exotic country. I'm sure tourists who come to Seychelles would like to have, you know, sort of a massage or beautician who are local rather than from other countries. So we did it. Uh, I had 16 young girls, and uh, some of them were cutting grass, you know, sort of uh, at community centers, etc. And they turned into beautiful women themselves, and uh, most of them are still in the business. Uh, I have also introduced others, including uh, I call the Empower, Empower Seychelles was the NGO, I suppose you call it, that I started. And that was, again, for me to empower Seychelles through all sorts of ways, capacity building, whether it's men or women. And the center started attracting young girls who were just sewing, and uh, they came, and now they're all in business. I just came back from Seychelles last month, and they're in business, uh, very busy, working from home. They have young children, and they're very happy. And uh, we also had drug addicts and uh, ex-convicts who would drop in. It was like a drop-in center. So my interest has always been empowerment, Coming from a family of 12, myself, uh, and I was the seventh sort of girl in the family, I know what it's like, men and women, sort of sharing jobs, but I also grew up in a family where the gender roles were quite defined uh, and well-defined. Uh, I used to be upset why I couldn't play football outside with my brothers. I was told to come and do the ironing and the, you know, and ironing their shirts and whatever. So I grew up with that sort of, you know, why, why, why? So to the effect that when I was approached by Dr. Perna here uh, to join the advisory team for the project that she will outline later uh, on it, uh, I was so thrilled because I thought, yes, I know women. I have colleagues who have been coming from, you know, sort of very poor background, etc. They've made it to public life, and uh, yes, our story maybe has not been heard. And when Dr. Perna first asked me, I said, look, I, no, I, yes, I got to where I am now, but you know, I think I must have been at the right place at the right time. So it was just luck. And she said, no, it's not luck. <laughs> and when I started reading the stories already of some other women like uh, uh, Dr. Banda here, then I realized, yeah, there are sort of some common thread in all of this. So I'm very happy to be part of the advisory team and uh, looking forward to the whole project.
Good evening, distinguished ladies and gentlemen. Correction. I've never sold fritters in the market. I don't even know how to make them. <laughs> but I've mobilized women who sell fritters, and they've been my agenda. And, uh, and so when anybody says you started from there, that's fine. So that's where my constituency is. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure for me to be here. Let me thank the Institute for Public Affairs of the London School of Economics and uh, Political Science for offering me above parapet visitor professor in practice at this distinguished academic institution. Allow me to acknowledge the presence here of Africa's first and only first gentleman, <laughs> His Excellency Richard Banda, SC retired. I'm here. In case somebody is looking for a husband, they don't make that model anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I am here to give a, a public lecture on investigating women's journey into public life above the parapet, where I will look at the following questions. Why is it important, in my view, that women feature in public life? What difference does it make if women do hold senior positions? How has this worked in Malawi and in Africa? And what is my experience of coming into the head of state role in Malawi, especially surrounded by men, and how I dealt with any adverse responses from senior men and the male public? As I was thinking about what I should share with you, I thought about what Robert Greenleaf said in his article titled, The Servant Leader, and I quote, the servant leader is a servant first. It begins with the natural feeling that one wants to serve, to serve first then conscious choice brings one to aspire to lead. That person is sharply different from one who is a leader first, perhaps because of the need to assuage an unusual power drive or to acquire material possessions. For such, it will be a later choice to serve after leadership is established. The leader first and servant first are two extreme types. This quote, end of quote, this quote aligns with my philosophy about leadership. For your information, at 30 years of age, I drew my mission statement in life, which says, I will spend my life assisting women and youth gain social and political empowerment through business and education. And I'm glad that there are some people from Malawi in this room because they, <laughs> they will remember that this is all I've done all my life. In fact, when I was appointed 
foreign minister, I felt lost. Because for me, it's about women and youth and ensuring that I support them and empower them to gain social and political empowerment. The question of whether a leader is born or made is an ongoing debate. What is important is the need to nurture, support, and mentor those that are spotted with leadership instinct, even though they may be marginalized. And this includes women, most of whom are indeed marginalized. With this debate in mind, there cannot be any better time than now when many global initiatives that sought to strategically empower women are either being reviewed or evaluated. Among these are the Beijing Platform for Action and the follow-up conferences, the 58th session of the Commission on the Status of Women, the Millennium Development Goals with its successor, the post-2015 Sustainable Development Agenda. This moment is also a time when, as a global family, we will be celebrating 20 years after Beijing. Therefore, the issues of women are becoming areas of great priority to many once more. As a woman leader, 20 years after Beijing, by the way, I was in Beijing. And so 20 years after Beijing, I have learned that perhaps we should have engaged men more from the beginning. And they should have been part of the women leadership agenda for the advancement of women and in closing the gender gap. As I've said in many quarters, we've been talking to ourselves for too long. So as we analyze the status of women in the world today and their journeys into public life, it is important to reflect on what Libes Sultan of Yahoo Incorporation had to say, and I quote, so much of what it takes to be a leader has been historically defined by men. And while I was determined to be a leader, the last thing in the world I was going to do was to try to be like a man so that I could be taken seriously. I had to continue to be myself and create a leadership style that worked for me. I am just not capable of being anyone other than who I am. End of quote. I was being interviewed one time by SABC, Movers and Shakers of Africa. And they said, you've worked so hard, you want to get to the top and be as strong as a man. I said, no, I've worked so hard so I can get to the top and be a powerful woman. Indeed, as we discuss the journeys women have taken into public life, issues of poverty, underdevelopment, underrepresentation, equality, equity, and inclusivity immediately come to mind. As we know, women constitute the majority of our populations in the world. And when we talk about these issues, we are actually talking mostly about women who are in majority. I have said everywhere that yes, indeed, we are in majority. We are over 52%. But I think what will happen tonight is that I will have persuaded the men enough to join us and to recognize the fact that 
Not only are we 52%, but the last time I checked, we brought into this world the other half. <laughs> I wish to note that despite there being progress for women moving into decision-making positions as witnessed by the rise of women at all levels of society, including becoming heads of state and government, women still face various challenges in their journey to public life. Without painting a gloomy picture, allow me to cite some of the challenges that women face on their journey to public life and also analyze what solutions, support mechanisms, and survival tactics that enable them to rise to various senior decision-making positions. One, it is the limited access to formal education. In many countries, women face constrained access to formal education. As a result of this, they have lower access to opportunities in employment, business, and financial services. A recent study on education showed that of the 11% of the people of the world who cannot read and write, 90% of those are women. This emphasizes the urgent need to educate our women and the girl child. Education is a promoter and a, and a defender and a defense. It helps people to raise themselves up and assist them in breaking barriers for their development. A study of 60 developing countries estimated that the economic loss from not educating girls at the same level as boys amounted to $90 billion a year. And yet, another study suggests that women invest up to 90% of their earnings, as opposed to just 30 to 40% for men. The other problem is the lack of economic empowerment. Lack of economic empowerment contributes to gender inequality and inequality of economic opportunities for women, as well as an equal social status and rights. These inequalities slow down development for women and their ability to rise to public offices. In many parts of the world, men participate in the economy and public offices more than women. These gender gaps range from 12% in the developed economies to more than 50% in the developing countries. Unfortunately, too many women are unaccounted for, underutilized, and overexploited. But history has shown us that when women contribute more, economies do better. Therefore, there's need for political will at all levels of decision-making to create opportunities for women. For example, in Malawi in the 1990s, government created what they called Small Enterprise Development Fund, Small and Medium Enterprise Development Fund, acronymed SMEF, that empowered business women to access capital who later were able to build financial capacity to compete with their male counterparts and ended up running for office and becoming members of parliament and even cabinet ministers. Because for me, I'm convinced that economic empowerment is key. Because in some of the countries where, where some of us live, there's no affirmative action and there's no special programs for women to run for office. You have to compete on equal ground with men and therefore it's all about money. In Africa, fortunately, we have seen presidents that have taken advantage of their power where their constitutions allow them 
to appoint women to positions of vice president. I want to pay special tribute to the president of South Africa before appointed two women, um, Pumizile, uh, Madam Pumizile, who is now head of UN Women in the, at the UN, was once vice president of South Africa. In Zimbabwe, Joyce Munjuru serves now as vice president. In Uganda, Speciosa Kazibwe served as vice president. And in the Gambia, the president also appointed a woman as vice president. We have also seen affirmative action policies in South Africa opening opportunities for women and various senior decision-making positions. An additional problem for women, as if all that is not enough, is patriarchal. In our patriarchal society, women, it, uh, patriarchal society has hindered many women to enter public life in many parts of the world. Faulty socialization processes at household level and community orientation have led women not being accepted into leadership positions. This has also impacted on the women to feel that they don't have to fight for leadership positions. These behavior patterns have mostly been influenced by negative attitudes, traditions, and customs. I believe that real change must start with changing attitudes, traditions, and behaviors in our families, communities, and institutions. I have always said to women that perhaps we need to take responsibility for some of the things that are happening when our men grow up and are not gender sensitive. It's what we do as mothers at household level. Those of you that are from Africa know that we are the first to say, don't cry like a girl, telling our son. <laughs> Why are you crying like a girl? And then telling the, bo the, 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 the boy child not to get into the kitchen. The boy child shouldn't cook. So the boy child is forever sitting with dad at the other side of the house. But the only little radio in the house is there. So this boy is listening to the radio and your daughter is with you in the kitchen. So some of the disadvantages women get the girl child faces, it is us mothers who are at the center as perpetrators. Another example that I can give, in our patriarchal society, what women face is when they have been appointed to senior positions. Allow me to give an example of Malawi where our late president, Pingu Amtarika, appointed a woman by the name of Mrs. Mary Nangwale as the first Malawian female inspector general of police. She acted in that position, but the constitution required that she should be approved by parliament. Unfortunately, my sister, at the time she acted, she demonstrated fully that she was going to be in control and that she was going to take to jail anybody who is corrupt and anybody who breaks the law. And that was the sin she committed. When the name went to parliament, it was not approved because the parliament <laughs> was male-dominated. Australia's former prime minister, Julia Gillard, in a misogynist speech to parliament, passionately recounts how women leaders are treated and focused on uh, especially during her time in office, how she was humiliated and looked down upon, even to the extent of being called a witch and a bitch, a chicken, a cow. 
It is very educative to examine how many women leaders have been treated, how women have been treated and how they left office. As in many instances, after women leaders have cleaned up the mess, they are often pushed out from their positions. I can mention leaders and leaders here, names, but go and Google and find out how they came in and how they left. Lack of role models and mentoring. Role models and mentorship are critical in motivating women to enter public life. Women need to look at each other for inspiration. However, most women lack role models and mentors to support them. Furthermore, the manner in which successful women leaders are treated discourages many women to aspire entering public office. It is common knowledge across all sectors of society that the higher you go, the fewer women you see. The statistics are glaring. Only 4% of chief executive in the standard and the poor's 500 company list are women. Only 20% of parliamentary seats across the world are occupied by women. And less than 10% of countries in the world have female leaders. Despite these statistics, evidence has shown that, in fact, when women get the chance to lead, they lead better than men. Forgive me. <laughs> this is because women are risk takers. They feel and connect with the plight of basic livelihood. Women leaders are brave, and when problems arise, they do not cover up or look away. They are more persuasive, assertive, and willing to take more risks than men leaders. A study of over 7,000 leaders showed that women fare better in 12 of 16 competences in 12 of 15 sectors. Another study showed that women are very often hired to save companies or organizations in trouble. And as I said earlier, in most cases, they are likely, also likely to be fired after fixing the problem. <laughs> Women leaders feel the agency of doing something about a situation. They see and feel the plight of families, of children, of communities, and indeed of countries. They recognize that they are the face of poverty, education, health, water, and sanitation, leadership, energy, and climate change variability. They understand that and can relate to the above statistics in their homes and around the world. To women leaders, these statistics are not mere figures but burden and suffering that need to be reversed and be reversed as quickly as possible. For me, I have seen it, I have felt it, and have lived it. For me, therefore, it is a moral obligation to spend my life doing something about the situation. For example, in 1989, I established what we call the National Association of Business Women to help empower many women who were like me to move out of poverty, oppressive environments, and become active citizens. We reached more than 20,000 women, and many of the members of NABI moved up and took many leadership roles in their communities, in the church, and even in politics. The impact study that we conducted then, that was funded by USID, showed that 73% of the beneficiaries we assisted went out of poverty. 
84% end respect at household level and in their societies. 40% of the women we supported graduated from informal economy to small and medium enterprises. The study also showed that children born into these families were able to go to school. The women were able to take up leadership positions in their communities and contributed to their household upkeep. The study further showed that most women who stood for public office were those who had attained economic empowerment through business. It is because of this work that the Hunger Project gave me an award in 1997, the Africa Prize for Leadership for the Sustainable End of Hunger. The prize money was only $100,000. The award was shared between me and President Yusano of Mozambique. I remember telling him, just give me the other 50. <laughs> you are a whole president, you don't need it. When I turned up in New York to receive that prize, I went with 17 rural women. They had the drums, they were beating drums all over. I went back home with my $50,000 and started what I call, what is called the Joyce Panda Foundation. The Joyce Panda Foundation has now reached 1.3 million Malawians. We provide school bursaries to 3,500. We send 500 students to university. We look after 30,000 orphans. We provide a meal a day to those children and early childhood education. We have a women's organization, which is a sister organization to the LNC Leaf Market Women. Uh, those are 550,000, and a youth program over 850,000 youths. We have built schools. I just want you to see what happens when you invest in an African woman. <laughs> Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, but my worry then and now is that we have failed the women of this world, particularly Africa. We are not going to achieve MGD3, which is women's empowerment and gender equality. We have failed women of Africa and of the world that we are going 2015 to the UN to take stock of what we have achieved in the Millennium Development Goals and we have not achieved MDG 6. Why may I ask, have we failed to achieve only those that affect women? My argument has been that we didn't take a holistic approach in supporting women. In the Joyce Banner Foundation, we focus on economic empowerment, education, health, leadership, and rights. But this is another lecture. Next time. <laughs> Two, women leaders bring human face into policies and programs where issues of women and children come to the policy table. In many cases, women see what men do not see with regard to women and children issues, and in general, perspectives on how this impact on the small agenda of sustainable development. During my human rights activism, I campaigned against violence against women, rights of children, especially their right to education. In the year 2004 to 2006, I served as Malawi's gender minister. Upon assuming office as minister of gender and child welfare in 2004, my first responsibility was to enact domestic violence bill. 
I'm happy to report that by the time I moved from that ministry, the bill had been passed. I had also introduced a school bursary uh, program for girls to go to school. I had also launched what I called the Zero Tolerance Campaign Against Child Abuse. Three, women leaders are able to strike a balance between big projects and small ones in order to realize sustainable development and deliver healthy and happy communities. I have introduced in the past a Kawa family program, a village transformation program, a Bohope village program, the zero tolerance abuse against uh, the zero tolerance campaign against abuse of children appointed child protection officers at community level that went around in the villages to ensure that children are not being abused. And it is funny, that's the difference between a woman leader and a man, that I've heard men leaders looking down upon the small social protection projects, forgetting that these are building blocks for shaping an equitable and inclusive society. It will be noted that in most countries where policies and programs pay special attention to women and children, they have economically progressed faster and enjoyed a higher degree of relative happiness and inclusivity between men and women, which are key indicators of sustainable development. Four, women leaders have an inclusive team-building leadership style of problem-solving and decision-making. I recall that by the time I assumed the office of the president, the country was polarized on tribal and regional lines where most of the key government positions were mostly occupied by one tribe. The country had poor relations with our neighbors and our development partners. As president, I adopted an inclusive and participatory policy where I appointed an all-inclusive cabinet. I also engaged all stakeholders holders for consultations on key and important national policy issues. For example, I took an inclusive consultative approach on the Lake-Malawi border dispute between Malawi and Tanzania and the fight against theft of public funds, where I engaged members of the opposition, political parties, faith-based communities, and the civil society. Our regional and sub-regional bodies have also mainstreamed protocols policies and programs that focus on the empowerment of women, including promoting women into senior decision-making positions. Rwanda has the highest percentage of women representation in parliament and senior decision-making positions in Africa. But SADIC has done well because SADIC itself is headed by a woman, Dr. Tax. The African Union is headed by a woman, Dr. Kosaza Nazuma, and we have had a president in the Sadiq region. Sweden has one of the highest female participation rates in the world, partly because of its policies to support childcare and early education and putting a premium on flexible work arrangements and parental leave policies. The rise of women into senior decision-making positions in various sectors has surely contributed to the significant growth that we are witnessing on the African continent today. 
In addition to political reforms, the combined effects of economic and financial reforms have added to the positive outlook for the continent. Experts predict that the continent's combined consumer spending will grow to about 1.4 trillion in 2020. They also estimate that 128 million African households will be in middle class income by 2020, just as India. They further estimate that 1.1 billion Africans will be of working age by 2040. What I have also observed is that most Africa's economies are becoming increasingly diversified in various sectors like financial services, health and pharmaceuticals, infrastructure, energy, construction, information, and communication technology. The United Nations Conference on Trade and Development in 2013 estimated that foreign direct investment flows into Africa countries increased by 5% to 50 billion US dollars in 2012, even as global foreign direct investment fell by 18%. This can only bear testimony that returns on investment in Africa are among some of the highest in the world. More positively, however, a number of African states managed impressive economic growth rates of over 44% since the 1990s. In addition to infrastructure and technology, are moving fast, connecting the African countries to each other and the world at an unprecedented rate. There have been about 316 million new mobile phones, phone users in Africa since 2000. Mobile phone usage has increased by 20% a year for the last five years, opening up access to banking and other financial services. For example, rural farmers that previously wouldn't have used banks can now access financial products through their mobile phones. It is correct to observe that the many drivers and beneficiaries of this impressive growth in Africa are women. That's why I'm citing all these statistics. Because whether we like it or not, it is women who are driving this impressive picture. This testifies to the view that more, when women contribute more, the economies do better. This is a century for Africa. Most of the fastest growing economies now are in Africa. This is happening due to committed and dynamic leadership of men and women leaders on the continent. During my time as gender minister, foreign minister, vice president, and then a state president of Malawi and chair of SADC, I benefited a lot from their support. On this journey, the lesson I have drawn is that I received a lot of support from men, more than women, and I do not remember when I was undermined by, by them. If anything, particularly in the mainstream, in government, civil servants, I don't remember anybody looking down at me. If anything, negative attitudes, insults, and name-calling came from outside the mainstream government system. Against all odds, Against all insinuations and the perceptions that Malawi was not ready for a woman president, particularly at a time when the country was on the verge of collapse, I made several critical policy decisions that demonstrated that women leaders are risk takers. First, when I got into office, 
I had to devalue the kwacha. The leadership in the past were afraid to do this because it takes away votes, because of the pain it brings on the poor, because of that impact. But I did. Two, I introduced free press, freedom of association, even repealed the law that restricted the media from publishing articles and gave power to a minister to ban a newspaper if that minister was not happy. Furthermore, my government repealed most of the oppressive laws that impinged on people's freedoms and rights. I'm talking about risk-taking. Because when you allow people to write anything, you cannot imagine what they've been writing about me for two years. But I allowed that to happen. It will be noted that these changes contributed significantly to the overall growth and in making Malawi to achieve the biggest leap in the 2013 World Press Index on the press freedom. I hope you all know that when I came in as president, we were at position 146, and in one year, we went down to position 75. And this was not a mean achievement. Thirdly, was the liquidation of where Malawi. Every country in Africa wants to have their flag carrier. I liquidated Air Malawi, which had collapsed because and was a burden on the government budget for many years. My predecessors had tried and failed to deal with this matter. We closed down Air Malawi. By the time I left office, I had brought in a new airline, the Malawian airline jointly with Ethiopia Airways. Fourthly, I took to Parliament our decision to run tripartite elections. For a long time, we failed as a nation to hold local government elections. And it was deliberate. And I remember one president telling me, when you decentralize, you give away your power. So in Malawi, we shall never have tripartite. Uh, we shall never have local government elections. There are some members here who have worked for the Commonwealth, and I know how they pushed hard that we should have local government elections. When I came in as president, I took the risk. And the, the last elections, we had local government elections as well. Number five was uh, in coming up with an economic recovery plan. I looked at the economy and realized that it was necessary for us to come up with a plan that was clear for everybody and all Malawians to own. So as soon as I took over power, I developed an economic recovery plan which sought to spearhead the economic recovery process of the country. We had prioritized five sectors, agriculture, mining, tourism, energy, and infrastructure development. Each sector had three priority projects which were designed to spur growth and a turnaround of the economy. The plan also provided for social protection programs that cushioned the poor and disadvantaged for the from the adverse effects of the reforms. Number six was to fight corruption. Those, I'm told corruption is not only a problem in Africa. 
Europe is struggling as well in America, everywhere. There's corruption. But I think it's a decision a leader must make because it's not fair. When money is, is stolen, then it's being stolen from the poor. Upon learning the nature and gravity of theft of resources in the public service, and I shall forever be grateful to the ambassador of the European Union, Alexander Bourne, because he's the one I consulted and he's the one who opened my eyes, because I didn't know. I therefore immediately instituted a forensic audit by external auditors. I had decided to get to the bottom of the problem and stop theft and corruption in government once and for all. And thank God I made an announcement. But I was warned by friends across the continent that it is not easy. It's easier to cover up because when you fight corruption, they'll fight you back. They'll bring you down. They'll smear all that onto you. And you may never get up again. So the choice that you have to make is do I want to do this or not? For me, it was a choice between the people of Malawi and my political career, and I placed Malawians ahead of my career. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, at the end of the day, we made arrests of 68 suspects, most of them in court, and we are successfully um, running trials, froze accounts, withdrew property. I had committed myself to this fight without fear, knowing very well the repercussions. But I'm proud to say that um, the current president who took over for me has decided to continue with the fight because we've already made a lot of gains. And I know that one day Malawi shall be corrupt free. It's all about who is sitting in the driving seat. It's all about political will. I wish to thank the British government for providing to my government financial support to conduct an external forensic audit. And I also wish to thank the German government who announced two days ago that they are going to provide resources to go into the years 2009-2012 because I conducted a forensic audit for the period I went into office to finish President Bingham Tarika's uh, of, uh, term. In Malawi, for example, when I became president, I realized that we could not meaningfully uplift our country out of poverty without engaging women. Being the first woman president in the country, it was also incumbent upon me to ensure that issues of women are at the center of government policies. Most of my policy positions were informed by my experience as I was a product of a woman who had come from a day when I lived on one dollar a day to state house. I was clearly aware that many women and girls looked up to me as a role model and mentor. I believe in the principle of nothing about us without us. Issues of ownership, partnership, and participation are key in building long, sustainable development. Therefore, I decided that we shall not talk about women, youth, or people with disability without them. Upon becoming state president, I established the presidential initiative on maternal health and safe motherhood, where we mobilized traditional leaders, women, communities, and the private sector to rally support for the safe motherhood and maternal health. Indeed, these initiatives helped 
to remarkably improve the situation I found. We were able to reduce maternal mortality from 675 to 460 per 100,000. The UNFPA recognized this, acknowledged this at the African Union and gave us an award last year. I also established the Presidential Initiative on Poverty and Hunger Reduction, where we mobilized women and youth into cooperatives, farming clubs, and linked them to anchor farms for mentorship. We gave them seeds, a cow family, linked them to markets, and introduced them to modern farming technologies. I upscaled irrigation and introduced two crops a year to overcome dependence on rain-fed farming and thereby broaden our production base and enhance foreign exchange generation. These initiatives were meant to fast-track the economic recovery program in mobilizing foreign exchange, ensuring food security, enhancing incomes and at, nutrition at household level. Appreciating the importance of energy to industry and household, I fast-tracked the rollout of rural electrification programs where we installed electricity to 81 trading centers in the rural and suburban areas and added 64 megawatts to our grid in the country. We managed to move the country from 2.1 million people who were food insecure in 2012 to a harvest of 3.9 million metric tons production in 2013-2014 season, representing 9% higher than the previous season. This has accounted for an overall 1.5 million metric ton surplus in maize and with 10% increases in other food crop production. We recovered the economy from 1.8% in 2012 to 6.3% in 2013. We increased our foreign exchange reserve cover from one week in 2012 to over three and a half months in 2014. The factories were operating at 35% when I came in and were at 85% when I left. Fuel supply was at less than a day when I came in. In fact, fuel to go and attend the funeral of President Mutarika was donated by Zambia. But by the time I left, we had 15 days supply. We had initiated a water project in every district and a model village in every district. I'm saying all this because for me I believe that growth is not merely GDP growth. Growth is about wealth and prosperity for all, opportunity for all, happiness for all, men and women, political and economic freedom for all, men and women. Growth is also about growing the number of children in school and young people in jobs. Growth is about growing the number of mothers who give safe birth in a hospital, of growing the number of families who have plenty of food. In short, I could say that I had made progress towards healing the country from tribal and political divisions and strife. I had sufficiently recovered the economy. I had laid the foundation for sustainable growth and diversified sources of economic growth through the five priority sectors of agriculture, mining, tourism, energy, and infrastructure. An international audit firm by the name of Ernest Young has predicted that Malawi is positioned to be one of 
is positioned to be one of the five fastest growing economies in Africa in the next five years. Malawi has been projected to grow by 7%. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, this success story could not have been possible without my deliberate effort to create space for all Malawians to participate in the nation building process. I appealed to the people and made them understand the need to sacrifice in order to recover the economy. In developing the economic recovery plan, we brought all stakeholders together, civil society, public service, private sector, development partners, and a team of both local and international advisors. In the fight against theft in government, I received very good support from civil servants where we drew the action plan to reforming the financial uh, management information system in the public sector. I'm, I'm, I'm winding up, don't worry. <laughs> Federal leaders in Africa and the international community provided valuable support, all of which contributed greatly to my presidency. I want to conclude this way. As indicated earlier, my mission in life is to empower women and youth through business and education. I'm a self-made leader and I'm privileged to have lived most of the challenges highlighted above. I have pushed these things from a personal experience, from an emotional point of view and from a practical perspective. I have moved from where I was not sure where my next meal would come from. On this journey, I have believed that leadership is about falling in love with the people you serve and the people falling in love with you. The grain of leadership, I truly believe in servant leadership. The grain of leadership in men or women alike will need nurturing to come to full maturity. For many women, their grain of leadership has withered away too early too soon as a result of the challenges cited above. It is a tragedy that they have not realized their full leadership potential. On my journey as a Malawian woman who is deeply conscious of the history and struggles of Malawian women and girls, as an African woman who knows the challenges of African women and girls, and as a global human rights activist who, who, activist who has championed for the plight of marginalized women and girls, and as advancement of women, and as a former head of state who has championed for the Malayan people, the African people, and the world, I have come to believe that participation of women in leadership has to be a common agenda for both men and women. Robert Greenfield has argued in the court above, women by nature design are born, by design are born leaders as in most cases they seek to save starting from the home through all levels of communities, captains of industry in private sector, in parliament, in cabinet, and even in, at presidential level. Their services are transformational. As Dr. Greenberg argues, and I quote, women leaders are venturesome, less interested in what has been than what can be. They will run the risk of occasionally being wrong in order to get things done. And with their fine abstract reasoning skills, they will learn from any mistakes and carry on. In most of our societies, most people believe that might is always right. 
The strong and powerful can bring a leader down, but people will remain in love with that servant leader. We have seen in many parts of the world where the might may attempt to rig the elections, but they cannot rig the minds of the people, as the people will still rally behind that servant leader. Thank you very much, distinguished ladies and gentlemen, for your attention. Thank you. Hello. Um, can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, can you hear me now? <laughs> okay, well, what a hard act to follow. Um, I'd like to um, say thank you so much, Dr. Vanda. What an amazing um, account of your journey. And it's exactly those journeys that we want to capture on this project. I want to be sure we leave enough time for us to have a discussion and question and answer, so I'm going to <clears throat> skip the little bit of responding to you that I was going to do and just introduce the project and tell you why we're doing it, what it's about. And I'd like, first of all, to thank um, our funders who've made the whole project possible. That's the Annual Fund at the LSC and the Alison Weatherfield Foundation, Christine is here from that too. Um, so thank you both. In fact, it's Christine's organization which has enabled us to bring in research fellows. Uh, and Dr. Bander is our first uh, fellow here uh, to, to do this project. So let me tell you what we're doing and why. We are, as part of the Institute of Public Affairs, interested in the links between what we understand, what we know, and what we do. And what we know about women in public life is they are extremely poorly represented across public life and across different countries and places. It's not an issue of one country getting it right and another getting it wrong. It's a sad fact that we see reflected in too many figures and too many experiences across the world. I had a number of slides to show you, but uh, I won't. I will read you a couple of figures. Um, in uh, the 20th century, of 1,941 national leaders... If we had time, I would ask you to guess how many were women, <laughs> but I won't. Of 1,941, only 27 leaders were women. That's 1.4%. Of those, only about half reached their position of seniority without the advantage of a family dynasty. So that's fewer than 1% of women, of national leaders in the last century were, were women. Uh, we don't know how... Very many of those women got to the top. We don't know what enabled them. We don't know what got in their way. We don't know what obstacles they had to overcome. That's the sort of thing we want to capture in this project. And with Dr. Banda this week, I've had a fantastic opportunity to dig below the very many things that she's talked to you about tonight. Um, and, and you see how prolific her life has been, how busy she's been and how productive, to look at those sort of dynamics underneath. What we want to do is distill the lessons of what assists and what hinders women in reaching those senior positions. We've talked a lot about politics tonight with Dr. Banda, but High Commissioner, uh, High Commissioner Lloyd um, is actually from the diplomatic field. And what we're looking at is four areas where 
where um, women have, have had very varied experiences of reaching senior positions, academia, diplomacy, politics and civil society. Let me give you a couple more figures. In London, women heads of mission, heads of embassies, constitute only 13% of all, of all representatives. At the, at, the New York, at the UN in New York, only 15% of permanent representatives are women. And we're sitting in academia, so let's set the uh, spotlight on ourselves too. Across universities in this country, only one in five women reach professor status. No, sorry, only one in five, yeah, only one in five university professors is a woman. At the LSE, it's one in four. <laughs> Make of that what you will. <laughs> a survey in civil society, a survey of 558 chief executives of trade associations, of labor groups, interest groups, think tanks, and other non-profits um, found that only 18% of them are women. Look, this story is grim, and it's everywhere. There's not enough data like that to call on every country and tell you about everywhere, but there is enough to say that this is not a unique pattern. Um, what we're doing is we're looking at those four areas, and I'll tell you why. Because in, uh, in politics, like Dr. Banda, if you become head of state, you are a figure of authority, you are a national leader, whether you're head of government or head of state. Whether you're in diplo I mean, if you're in a diplomat, you are representing your country and have uh, a voice of authority. If you're in academia, you know what you're saying, or at least you're supposed to be an expert on your subject. I won't say any more about that. Um, in civil society, you have women who are movers and shakers and shaping the world around them and bringing change and being advocates for change. So those four areas are those we're particularly interested in and where we're starting work. We've been interviewing women from across those sectors. The enthusiasm has been absolutely phenomenal. And I have to say, Dr. Bandy, your, your willingness to come here and being our first visiting fellow is absolutely fantastic. We're very, very appreciative of you making the time in your busy schedule. Um, uh, High Commissioner, you too. And uh, one, one uh, uh, person I've interviewed from civil society um, a couple of weeks ago was actually in hospital on her sickbed and was so determined to participate, she asked me to go up to see her in hospital to interview her. Um, I think there's a real groundswell of interest in this. It's a topical discussion everywhere. And I think we're getting a lot of interest that uh, we'll be able to capture in this project and feed back to you. Um, I, I was going to quote for you a couple of things that people have said, but I think in a way, Dr. Bandy, you've captured a lot of that, as have you, High Commissioner. What, we, what we're getting back is an incredible, uh, incredibly strong set of motivations for women to go into public life, and that's what's carried them through the adversity that, that, that they've met. And we're looking at the networks that they've been able to call on. Sometimes male, as you've said, Dr. Manda, but often women too. And the key figures that have come out as particularly supportive across different accounts is very interesting. As we develop the project, as we do more interviews, as we get more findings, I propose that we come back to you and anybody else who's interested in a few months' time and say, look, here's what's coming out of the project. Here's the findings we're getting. Let's talk about it. What input do you want to make? What do you make of these, of these findings? We will do that at the end of March. At the end of July, at the end of the summer term next year, we will have a final um, summing together uh, event to pull this all together and to publish uh, in visual form. We're looking at a video book at the moment of, of what we've found. Um, 
I'd like to point you also to the website for the project, which I can't show you now because I don't know what's happened to our slides. I think I might have messed it up when I went there earlier. Um, there is a website now for the project. If you go through the Institute of Public Affairs on the LSE website, you'll find access to our website. And you will find there also something I'd really like you to do, which is participate. At the IPA, we're very keen on getting participation in what we're doing. We're looking at engagement in scholarship and public life. There is a chance there for you to say, here's who I think you should talk to. Here's the sort of questions I'd like you to add to what you're asking. And I really welcome that uh, input from you. Please feel free to get engaged in this project, and we will keep in touch with you. We're developing a mailing list, and we'll put you on it. I did have, I'm just going to show you this because I can't put it up. I did have a lovely slide of um, lots of women in public, senior public positions. And those of you who are in my class tomorrow might be tested on who's in there. <laughs> I won't keep you much longer, but I will say um, uh, we do have another event on the project in, in a month's time when Professor Sue Carroll of Rutgers University will be here uh, at an event that we are co-hosting with the Political Studies Association, um, and she'll be achieving a prize, uh, she'll be receiving a prize for her work, and she'll be talking on the subject, More Women Can Run, Why Women Remain Underrepresented in Politics. And she has in particular done a study uh, and might talk about uh, Hillary Clinton's political life. But I think the message that's coming out very strongly is so far, it's early days and we'll share with you as it shapes up more, is that because women's access to senior political life is so constrained that the women who get there are particularly remarkable. You've heard from President Banda her commitment to taking forward the projects and the, and the values that she had before she came into political life. And Halle quite rightly said that there aren't many women who reach senior life who have that nitty-gritty, everyday, lived reality experience of what it means to be a woman in a society that doesn't value women. And you won't hear many heads of state talk about um, the patriarchy, so I'd like to no note that she did that. Um, and we, we also will be comparing those with a trajectory like yours, Dr. Banda, which has come from outside the elite into a power-holding position to those who come from a very different background. And some of those faces that uh, are on that slide I didn't show you come from very dynastic families and dynastic politics, which will perhaps show us different trajectories and stories to those like yours, High Commissioner, and yours, Dr. Banda. Um, I just want to thank you all for coming. This is our first public event on the Above the Parapet project. I'd like to acknowledge um, Halle Afshar is on the advisory board for the project, as is High Commissioner Lloyd. I don't know if our other advisory group members are here. Is Bim here? Yeah. Where are you, Bim? Bim Adawunmi is also on the advisory group. Thank you. It's not a party political project. It's very interesting. We're having disagreements already on some of the substance of the discussion. Joyce Bander and I have had a little debate about a few things this week. <laughs> um, and we have cross-party representation on the advisory group. Uh, in this country, we have um, Conservative, Lib Dem, and Labour parties represented. We have Halle as a crossbencher represented, and academics, diplomats, and civil society activists. Mara Ailarassi and Kat Banyard from the NGO sector are on that group too. Um, I hope you'll get involved. Thank you for coming, and I'm going to stop now. We won't have time for discussion. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much.
Um, I will be very brief in thanking my wonderful speakers. It's been an enormous honor and a privilege for me to be in their presence. And I will focus on, on, on Dr. Banda, of course, because she's been amazing. I offer you my sincere apologies for associating you with fritters. I will never do so again. It's okay. I used I used Google. You used Google. Terrible. Uh, but now the floor is open. I, I, I must say that, that your speech was really one of the most empowering speeches I have heard, and it's been a privilege listening to you. But I would like to open the floor. Um, to questions. I'm afraid we don't have much time. So I can take about three questions from the floor. Okay. Could I please ask you to be very, very precise? Okay. Okay, go ahead. Could you, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you. Um, first, my name is Richard Surinjogi. I'm a final year social policy student here at the London School of Economics. Um, my question is um, for President Banda, and it's um, concerning the diaspora. Um, there's a lot of people whose um, parents are um, born in Africa, and I still feel very connected to Africa. We're doing very well here, highly educated, working for top companies. I'm very keen to contribute to Africa and drive its development. What do you feel is the most impactful way we can make practical steps to help do that? Right, next question, please. Okay, thank you. The lady in front, thank you. Dr. Banda, who have been your female role models and mentors over the years? Okay, and, and, and the gentleman at the very, very back. Thank female? You. Female role models? Yeah. yeah. And mentors. Sorry, the lady. Yeah. Beg your pardon. <laughs> Hi, my name is Daniela. I am a postgrad student here in the history of international relations. My question could be either to Dr. Bunda or to the High Commissioner. Dr. Bunda has actually mentioned a common agenda between men and women and has mentioned many seminars and conferences such as Beijing and CSW. But in your opinion, how do we bring men to the club? Thank you. Thank you. Three questions for you. Um, you, the, the first question was uh, the diaspora. Um, in Malawi, we were just in the process of uh, introducing dual citizenship because that's a barrier as well. For some people in countries where they have to remain Malawian or take citizenship elsewhere, then it's difficult for them to make that choice, especially if they have good jobs here and they're settled here, the children are going to school, they end up not coming back to Malawi. So for me, it's a must for countries like that, those to ensure that there's dual citizenship. I am for dual citizenship, even for Malawi. Number two, I believe... <laughs> Somebody likes that. Calm down, calm down. <laughs> Number two, I, I am told that um, statistics are showing that Ghana is benefiting a lot from its diaspora, uh, whether it's because they're patriotic or because there's dual citizenship, but they bring in a lot, a lot of money back home. In fact, the year that I was discussing with somebody in Ghana, it was $2 billion. 
and that's a lot of money. So that's another way, especially where the environment is good, where you think you can have both ways, you can have dual citizenship, is also to invest back home, is also to send money remittances back home. That's the, the way you can build your economies. In Malawi, we're just in the process, we're actually established in the foreign office a desk or with a, a full-time officer to ensure that they encourage those of our sons and daughters that are outside to invest back home or at least to just bring money back home by opening a dollar account uh, so that that money then helps build the economy back home. A question came that said, who were your female role models? Uh, this was a discussion today all afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> I, there's only one woman, and that's my grandma. She was an entrepreneur, a woman. Uh, in my tradition, the grandmother brings up the first grandchild. And so in our case, my father was working in the police, insisted that he wanted to bring up his daughter. But my grandmother insisted, so they ended up sharing. That, so every weekend I spent with my grandmother. She was very, very strong, refused abuse, was self-sufficient, worked hard, employed men, had a, gave a lot. Everybody was coming in and out, eating at the house. So I learned to give at a very early age. But also, I don't remember any time when she wasn't selling something. The only thing she didn't sell is her grandchildren. But <laughs> <laughs> so she, she had enough money all the time. In fact, our parents lived in town, but we ate better. <laughs> and we had a better life at the village level. So for me, I, I knew from a very early age that I needed to be strong, to stand and to be independent, and that to stand on my own and to refuse to accept abuse. That was my grandmother. But uh, I think that I must be honest here, shamelessly, to say that most of those that have encouraged me along the way, that have mentored me, have been men. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, thanks. The third question was... Uh, I answered that. How to bring men into the club. Yeah, how, to, how to bring, how to bring men. men into the club. You said. Well, you just said you don't, I just, yeah, I just did that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Would you like to answer the third question? Thank you very much. I think we touched on that again as we were discussing before coming in here. Uh, when Dr. Banda said the men, you know, we need to involve the men. And I recall way back when I was permanent secretary or something in health back in Seychelles. And we were doing family planning programs and we, the health service, you can get it free. And uh, we still get women, we still have today, coming and they say it's an unwanted pregnancy, it's an unplanned, whatever. So I sat with some women and I said, why? You can get all these things free, what is going on? And what came out is, but we get home, it's okay, we come here, you give us the, the pills or whatever, we get home, and at night when we're taking the pill, the, the husband says, what are you doing? What are you taking? Well, I'm taking contraceptives. We said, throw this out of the window. So we then realized that we need to get that whole program going and be effective and successful. We had to bring in the men. And when you bring in the men and you explain to them everything and what is going on and why, etc., etc. They also know that having big families, one after the other, is not good. You know, sort of they can't afford it, etc. So you put all the challenges to men. We didn't have any problems in involving them in that particular program. So, and I think Dr. Banda also has examples, and she said, where involve the men, engage them. 
Uh, we appreciate that at the beginning uh, there was a lot of affirmative action needed. We wanted women, women. From the Seychelles perspective, we never had any quota. And up to today, we never have any quota. We've always looked at men and women. The Constitution says person. It doesn't even say men and women. It says person. And for us, a person is a person, men or women. So in many ways, if you were to say we mainstream, using the jargon, gender was mainstreamed. Education, health, everything. Of course, we still have the traditions, the mores, the sort of attitudes, you know, sort of gender stereotype, etc. But in terms of the policies, I think this is what has helped us, uh, engaging the men as soon as we can. And as I say, it's not that difficult. I think a lot of it is more a peer in our minds. But if you engage them and you do the advocacy also with them properly, uh, I think it, it works. Okay, last round. Yes, your question. Could you have the... No, no, they're, they're behind you. <laughs> Hello, my name is Chibundu. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, I recognize the need for women in government, but isn't the need for competent people greater, regardless of their gender? For example, the Nigerian Minister of Petroleum is a woman who has presided over the disappearance of $20 billion from our crude oil sales. In order to be seen as progressive, there are increasing instances of affirmative action for affirmative action's sake. But can we afford this reckless application of a policy? Thank you. Thank you. I had a second question from there. Thank you. Yep. Hello. Uh, um, I'm at the Chakwera, um, um, uh, Malawian student studying in the UK. Uh, my dad, former public sector worker, uh, who now works for the UN, and my mom owns uh, runs a small business in Malawi. Um, given that you, in the recent elections, that you didn't win, do you feel the current government is doing enough towards the issues of women in Malawi? Okay. Um, there's a lady that My name is Vinjerum Kandawere. Uh, my question is on career advancement for women in the private sector. Uh, what are your thoughts on recent news about companies like over here? Companies like Facebook and Google uh, paying for female employees to freeze their eggs in order to prolong childbirth. And do you think that more companies should take should adopt a similar approach? <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Uh, oh, oh, answer one. Okay. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe Ambassador, you answer the first one, then I'll answer the second one. You, you and then the first one, Thanks. Whether we should have affirmative action or go for competency. Yeah. As I said, in, for us, I know I've had debates, discussions, arguments with other people, other countries, where we need the affirmative action. Now, I'm not going to judge to say, no, we don't need, because every country is different, every situation is different. In some areas, you may want, you may need to start off with affirmative action, but from my experience, it's been 
competent, you know, sort of, we, we hope, I hope I got the position because I was competent rather than this was the quota. Okay, for even for us. And I think sometimes it, it runs the other way as well, where people think you are there because you part, you, you're just a quota. You're just a number, a token, or whatever it is. No, I think we should twist it around also and look at, yes, women are there. You make it to the top because you are competent. And I'm not saying there are no cases that's where people are put there as quota just because they're women, and as you say, then they do. One other thing I'd like to maybe say, and I think I had that with Perna when we first met. What, you know, we say women, we say men. Again, these are stereotype gender things because not all women are the same, just like not all men are the same. And not all leaders are the same, whether it's men or women, and whether not, you know, competent or not. This is another issue. But here we're looking at the women who have made it to the top, as we've heard from Dr. Banda. Yeah, women, we have certain qualities. It's not like they're better or worse, but we do have certain qualities that make us a particular type of leaders. And that leadership, I personally think, is one that is more and more required if we're going to solve the global issues, the world problems. I think this is why women are coming more and more in leadership and even in terms of heads of state, because the world recognizes that, yeah, whether it's for peace and security, our approach is different. As I said, it doesn't have to be a question of one is better, one is higher. It's just different, and it's maybe this difference that we now need. Thank you. Um, I, I, I think to add on to what uh, Her Excellency has just said, um, Malawi too, we don't have affirmative action. Um, but I think oh, there's so many educated, able women on the continent, enough to fill up the positions without affirmative action. And in Malawi, even if you want to go to run for office, you have to compete with your male counterparts on equal ground. When I came into office, I decided that it was time for women to take up leadership roles. I appointed a female chief justice, but she was already she had been a judge for many years. She was ready for the position. A female chief, just, a chief secretary, head of the civil service, a female solicitor general, Dr. Jane Banda, two deputy governors of Reserve Bank, deputy inspector general of police, eight district commissioners. I made 100 appointments. But when you look at the people that were appointed, were women and men that were qualified for the jobs. And if you look at our performance, what I was citing there before, you can see that there was an able team that was able to implement the programs that we set forth. The, the next question was, is government doing enough? This is from my fellow uh, Malawian. Is this government doing enough for women? I think that uh, it will not be right for me to, say, to answer this question, but uh, I think statistics are there for everybody to see whether we are going up or down. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. I think at this stage, uh, I would like to thank our wonderful speakers for having given so much to all of us. I would like to thank the wonderful audience for having been so patient and so precise. And I would like, please, to ask, if if, to ask the audience to stay while the speakers leave first 
and then leaving an ordinary manner. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you to Halle. Thank you.